How Does Education Affect One's Worldview? With Isaac J. Connor, an actor, director, and producer in the New York City area, Noah Fenstermacher, a first-generation grad student and founder of First Gen Class, a site to help other first gens navigate college, Celine Johamas, a drummer, percussionist, educator, and mother in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and Katrine Arafai, a playwright, musician, and educator in the San Francisco Bay Area. I know Noah from the first community theater production I did, which was Sweeney Todd, and you were a Birdman. Bird yeah, like a Birdman slash Bird Watcher, how the bird cage, and was like the first victim of the killer. So I came on screen, on stage, I said my piece, done, and that was like one of three roles. I think I had like three bit roles in the whole thing. Yeah, so you were like ensemble and all these different things, and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and you actually followed that acting route through uh, some of the local community theater scene. Uh, a friend of ours named Derek did a, a really uh, powerful yes. play that I read, but was not able to be involved in. And you were, from what I was told, phenomenal in that. Thank you, thank you. Yep. I, I really enjoyed that as aspect actually. Was I usually play, played roles like that where it's more theatrical and more, I guess fantastical is the word. So I love portraying someone who actually did exist and kind of basically give their speech on stage. It was like, embodying someone and some of importance in history. I enjoyed that aspect of it. And so Noah approached me with this concept of how education affects one's worldview. And I thought it was a fantastic centerpiece of a conversation. I just didn't know how we would go about this because it is so broad, because education can be defined so many ways and worldview can be defined so many ways. So it was kind of a matter of how do we really define this potential conversation? But what was clear was that your passion for it was there. And that you also, because you started the First Gen uh, Facebook page, you want to turn that into a a website and a podcast. My name is Nathan Kurtz, and I go to the Pennsylvania College of Technology, and I study architecture. Honestly, I wish I had First Gen class when I first went to college and was applying to school. It's a great resource, and honestly, I wish I had it back when I was a senior in high school. First Gen Class is a great resource for anyone that has questions about applying to college and what the college experience is like. The founder does a great job of reaching out to current professionals within higher education to get their expertise on the different topics that many students have questions about. He also reaches out to many different students of different backgrounds to be able to actually give relevant answers for different questions that students have about the college experience and process. Class is in session. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. Glad you're here and hope you enjoy our edutainment. That's educational entertainment. As we walk you through our scholarship opportunities, the admissions process, what to expect from campus life, and so, so much more. Thanks for checking in. And remember, today's a great day to learn something new. Let's start with talking about Noah and your experience being the first person in your family to pursue higher education. Well, thank you again, Isaac, for having me on here. My journey really starts with, I've always enjoyed school. I love talking. I know listening, I was a big part, but I'm a big talker. So I love talking about being with my friends, the social aspect. And then once I got to school, I actually found that I enjoyed some subjects too. I was a big guy, creative writing, English, and I actually went to college originally for creative writing. And then that shifted once I got to college from creative writing to maybe a teacher education aspect and then PR and then 
working in higher ed to hopefully be an admission something other students like me get to a university. And that's when I really started thinking about my journey and about things that I kind of took for granted or just, that's weird, but then later on saw it almost quantifiable as an aspect of what helped me get to where I am. Like, I, as you know, Isaac, people might not know here in the chat, but I'm a transracial adoptee. So my family was all white enough to meet as an African-American individual. But when I got to the university, I didn't really think about that because to me, they're just mom and dad. I never thought about that. But diversity aspect is part of the consideration in how they take people in admissions wise. And then it was your first gen, another aspect. And I kind of thought oh, everything, as I said before, quantifiable as part of what will help you get in or not into a university. And now that it's sort of my career path, I really want to delve into what does one's level of education correlate, if at all, with their, uh, their worldview. Uh, we see here on social media all the time about, especially right now, a lot of events that are sometimes unsettling or unpleasant to discuss. And it's weird to see one event that we can all agree that happened, but then have a wide variety of different reactions to it. Why does one person say, oh, that's not how it is, or that's not the facts? And the big thing I always hear people say is get educated. And so that's what made me think, okay, well, what does that person mean by that? And that's kind of how I brought into Isaac here about this whole conversation. Yeah, and that is a, that's a really good point. What is education? One of the most applicable links I found was the one that was uh, from courses.lumenlearning. Um, and it was formal education versus informal education versus cultural transmission. And basically, this was saying that they are the, the three so the three facets of education, they all fall into one of those. I have a hard time disagreeing with that because it does seem to me that uh, we have autodidacts, we have famous, brilliant geniuses throughout history who were autodidacts, and I am an autodidact. However, I am also a human being who doesn't get off my own butt sometimes. And so if you're, if you're going to be an autodidact and want to teach yourself, aspect number one is no one actually truly teaches themselves anything. You didn't, if you learn to play the guitar on your own, you're probably picking up a book of tablature that someone wrote, or someone's loaning you a guitar, or you bought that guitar. You didn't make it yourself. You didn't, you, you know, you're having to learn what chords are. You have to learn from other people no matter what, I think. And if you don't have that drive to follow through with what you're learning, then you're wasting your time. And that's where, the, that's where going to formal education is such a bonus, such an asset, such a, a, a fundamental if you really want to excel, I think, is because you then, you have schedules, you have deadlines, you have things you have to know, whereas you don't have to necessarily put that pressure on yourself. Um, there are famous autodidacts who have, but that's not a prerequisite, whereas formal schooling makes that a prerequisite. What are your thoughts on these types of, of education, Noah, and what has made you find, or have you found, that formal education is the best route for you? Oh, I like that question. Kind of a two-parter there. I would say the one thing that I take away from what you're saying is learning about the culture, kind of the cultural transmission or immersion into that. So it's like you have the racial aspect being an African-American individual in this landscape might be politically charged. It might be completely different. So it's about staying true to yourself, but learning about the world around you. And I think that element does help me into formal higher education. And it does relate to me, at least, because I think about the ones that, like, all they did at college was study. And it's a good thing to do, but they would study from, say, 9 p.m. till 6 a.m., no break, get up for class the next day, kind of pull all-nighters all the time. 
because they couldn't break down like separation between their personal life and what they did in formal education in the same way that I have to drive by Confederate flags to work in the school every day and separating yourself from what you see out there, what other people might think and kind of saying that you were doing what you believe. And even if I can try to convince them and, or at least have that conversation with them about here's another way to look at it. That's how I'll put it. That it's not always going to be a conversion or a transference of ideas that might just be someone talking in the wind and they're not, other person's not going to hear you. It's about staying true to yourself, learning about the world around you, but always remembering that you're a part of this world, right? So you have your place in it and always remember that. Yeah. You know, there are other people that were supposedly going to join us tonight that are not, and they were other professors, teachers. There were students from other countries that have come here and now they're struggling with how the United States is so makes it so difficult for you if you're well, if you're a human being in the United States, generous, the chances are that your, your life is a little challenging anyway. But if you're going to be a student coming here, I have friends that are really going through some, some tough times. And they were, weren't knowing if they could even stay here because the process of getting green cards. And it, it was just a nightmare. The visas, it, it, it's a nightmare for them. The other people that I invited were homeschoolers. And in preparing for this episode, that was one of the things I had to do some research on as well. In that research, I found that two things that were really interesting to me. One was that homeschooled children, uh, research has shown that homeschooled kids generally have consistently higher scores in schooling than public schooled students. The other factor is that public school students achieve higher math scores across the board. For some reason, math is just stronger in public school. And also in public school, there are much more opportunities for social skill development. The other thing that I found out is that 91% of homeschoolers are Christian in this country. So religion has a great deal to do with why someone homeschools apparently. And the only thing I can help think from that is because of the other part of this conversation tonight, and that is worldview. So if you do feel that, that your spiritual slash religious beliefs are first and foremost in everything in life, and you're going to homeschool your kids to, so that they follow suit, then that means you're, you're going to indoctrinate them um, into your way of thinking. Now, when you, Noah, when you first presented the idea of how education affects one's worldview, were you looking at worldview as something that was of a religious nature or no? I didn't specifically look for religious nature, but once it was kind of brought up in conversation, I did look into it. I think I can link in the chat below here, but there was an interesting study, I think it was Forbes, that found that there was a higher percentage that if they attended higher education, that they were not Christian that those that just went to high school and stopped right there had a lower percentage of being like atheist and more questioning of religion. So it's weird that it's like you're saying that those that homeschooled their kids tended to be Christian, but those who went into higher education tended to maybe not go more into religious aspect. Yeah, and then looking at what a worldview is, the, the definition that I found was a particular philosophy of life or, con or conception of the world primarily religious, philosophical, or scientific. Those are the three main categories. The difference between a worldview and an ideology is that an ideology is what is believed to be right, 
a worldview is what is believed to be true. So that's very subtle. Worldview is a lens through which self and reality are interpreted, including beliefs about what can be known and done. Why a worldview is important, and this is from a phc.edu website, it helps you understand different viewpoints, helps you to defend what you believe, and answering important questions for yourself. But because we have educators with us, um, I really wanted to get their perspective. So like Katrine, as someone who does teach, what are your thoughts on how education affects your students' worldview, but also how it affects your worldview? I want to share two of my life experiences. Uh, one is a person who is very important to me, and uh, we go to watch a movie together, and we come out, and he, I feel like he is unhappy or gives me a feeling like maybe I said something wrong or I did something wrong, and I ask, what is going on? And he says, didn't you notice two, those two gay people in front of us being affectionate in public? And that bothered him. Okay, so this is someone with a PhD from UC Berkeley who is an inventor and travels all over the world. He works in China, in Germany, in Russia, you name it. In Arab countries, in Israel. So, did education help him? Did even life experience help him? Another uh, example is I, have, I had this really sweet boy, five-year-old student, from a family of um, two moms. He has two mothers. So I'm working with him, he's very young, and he's, you know, um, he looks at me, and after a couple of months of teaching him, he says, so are you a boy or a girl? And that blew my mind. I thought, that is being open-minded. <laughs> you know, you look at me and you don't assume that I'm a girl or I'm a boy. You, you ask me, are you a boy or a girl? So does he have education? Is it, did he just, I don't, I don't know. What causes that a five-year-old can look at the world that way? and a PhD who have seen the whole entire earth can be so narrow-minded. Um, so I think what I'm drawing out of these two examples is that I don't think education can give people what is needed. Um, something, something else has to happen for a worldview to change. How has that professor's life of being educated and then most of his life he's been educating how has that affected his worldview has mm. it affected it at all is that what you're saying well it affects i mean i think it, i don't know if it affects I, I feel like he it's some people are just like a stone no matter how educated they become how travel well traveled they become they just stay in their own box and they cannot get out of it I think there's probably more informed arguments to be made to agree with that than what I can provide. But I do know that more of the right-wing conservative base of the United States would probably argue that there's too much of a, a left-wing liberal agenda in universities. My thoughts on that are 
that any insular community of people, and in the United States, that's most of the country, that is not exposed to the world around them or even the country around them or the state around them, their circumstances and their unwillingness to travel outside of that only reinforce the stereotypes that they're, that they're forming already. It is perplexing though. Education is so, like you said, so broad. So it's not just where you are, what you're learning, but where you are learning from. So whether that's from your family or for those who have faith, if that's from your church, or if it's from your um, idea of patriotism and your country, if it's nationalism. Uh, so all of these different things have different layers of your worldview. And obviously what's coming to the forefront is whether or not you are in a place of privilege or if you're somebody that is less privileged and how that plays into your into your point of view so being being yourself and being that we are human beings who have a tendency to be more selfish in general like that we, we see our point of view and think that others are going to have a similar or same experience when this is not necessarily the case i have a, a bachelor of music so after being in the sort of, you know, the, the, the space of that faculty, you then have that view uh, and the view of your professors in that sort of circle influencing not only your worldview, but what you're starting to potentially go into for your career. Like there's people who have an idea for you that you may not have for yourself. And so all of these things layer up into your worldview. And as does travel, that really changes not just the mind but the heart and I think that that's really to the to the core of what human beings are we need that from from other cultures maybe you just just answered it but what about that professor a friend of Katrine's who has he's brilliant clearly he's got a wealth of experience has traveled but is do you think maybe that's a generational thing or is it a gender thing uh, what makes someone just say you know what, I'm seeing all this stuff, but I am not letting you affect me. Is that what that person is doing on their travels? Could see it's the lens you're using, right? It's a different lens. What lens are you using when you travel? What makes someone get there and someone doesn't get there? I really don't know. That's a very good question. But I, I have a hard time believing that any kind of education can... To me, education is like receiving information. So information can be at school about a specific subject, or as you mentioned, information is like that you get from society. So you, you enter a museum, as you mentioned. So that's also some kind of information, right? That you learn differently. And um, what do you do with that information is what really matters. Um, and if you're learning from someone who you're learning from, also is what matters I, I studied i studied art in iran just because my parents didn't want me to leave iran before i have a bachelor's degree so i said okay I, i'm gonna waste four years of my life here for you which is what i did and then i went to moscow and studied piano for six years which was very difficult and very challenging i ended up um identifying myself and finding my creative outlet 
in writing because I never had a formal training in it. And I think that was actually so helpful. No one ever told me this is wrong, this is right. And that lack of education gives so much freedom to me so that I can be creative that uh, they actually killed it in the music school. And maybe to some extent in art school, but I wasn't even taking art so seriously to, to be able to talk about that. But in the music school, they definitely killed it. I am a teacher <laughs> and I'm very careful with education. I think one of the things that's interesting is you talked about institutionalized learning in the form of art education killed it, right? Because I think that my, what I have seen and what you can, you can find very easily, I included a link to it, is that there are all these autodidacts. There are writers who achieve the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, countless authors who never had schooling. They just figured it out. But I think it's easier to do something like that with art than it is to say, you know what? I'm going to be a heart surgeon. I don't need any schooling. I'll figure it out. You know, <laughs> these are very different things. So, um, so I think it depends on what it is you're trying to learn too, right? I want to bring it to you being a piano teacher. So is that affecting um, the way you listen to music? Is it affecting the music you want to hear? How is that affecting how you see music outside of teaching it? Yes, that's a very good question. The sad answer is ever since I started this school, which was about 18 years ago, uh, because it, it used to be my passion, uh, but then it, become, it became job, my job. So I had, at the beginning, I had to take just any student in order to survive, and uh, that killed my passion in a way. Uh, so, I, yeah, in, in Moscow, I used to go to a lot of concerts here, here also when I just moved here, but then it faded away. Um, so I hardly... Unless I'm in New York and I go to Carnegie Hall, I hardly ever go to listen to classical music. And I stopped practicing seriously for more than a decade. So I don't know if that answered your question of where we're going with this. Yeah, I did. Um, I do want to go back to Noah, though. Noah, what is your worldview? Pretty broad question there. So how do you mean by worldview? Like my perspective on events? Do you mean like my perception of self, how I view the world, that lens, what's chosen for me, what I choose to see, you know what I mean? Because so there's the, so many elements between like how you're raised. Again, love my family who are listening right now. Like I love the family. So it's like, what have they taught me? That's now like, it's a part of how I see it. So what I see as a fact might more be an opinion. Right? Like one example I could think of right now is golden rule you know treat people the way you want to be treated so i go out there as kind of like an unspoken rule that's how you treat people in every interaction and as you kind of found on facebook and social media maybe not everybody follows that rule and so it's like well for me that's just how you do but they're just like nah you know what i mean people can just choose to be how they want to so what i took as a fact they're like no you can choose to be a jerk and i choose that so it's like elements like that and then there are things that as i go through reality here they get metaphysical as i go through being a black man in uh, central pa or just being a man on campus 
which which identity marker do you identify with the most? Right? Am I more of a black student on campus? Am I more seen as like I think at this point I even annoy people because I'm just like I'm first gen fence democracy, right? Everything I talk about is being a first gen, helping them, going into that career. So it's like is that more what I identify with? Is that more how I'm seen? And if I see the world through that route, then it's more about look at all these opportunities that I have been given, the ones that I have earned and the ones that I continue to see. That I look through and think, well, that's awesome to go to campus, right? And I get to uh, these grants, there's scholarship, there's loan. I'm not paying for grad school. That's part of something that I earn through academic work to go to Penn State. They're paying me to work for them. And so that's more of a first gen thing. There's no race element to it. It's more about being first gen. So I think your worldview depends on the lens and identity marker in which you see the world. And then how do you use that in order to make an impact? Okay. So looking at the definition, a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world, primarily religious, philosophical, scientific. So looking at how you... I mean, honestly, let's 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 sink into to like a more more depth in you in this. All right. Are you a religious person? You would say that, yes. Okay. Are you a philosophical person? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you and I are both metaphysical, so I know that that's a yes. <laughs> uh, would you say that you look at the world scientifically? Somewhat. Yes. Yeah, that's a little interesting because I think uh, I look at the world sociologically, which I think. I don't know. I think that falls more into philosophical than scientific, yeah. but it could kind of be both. I'm wondering what they mean by scientific. So I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, we certainly all accept that like gravity is, is a real science we obey and that's a part of our, how we see the world for sure. Yeah. So, so that's there. So you're, you are religious, you are philosophical, you are scientific. So how has education affected your religious view? How has education affected my religious view? That's an interesting question. I would say for me, I think your educational journey will either, I don't think it leaves it untouched. It will either push you further into your beliefs or further away from your beliefs. But the path that I took, I personally got more invested in like the family, the religious, the belief aspect, just because I think as your point earlier on, the major we take, liberal arts, I think my major as higher education admissions is working more with the person, the people, and it's very family-oriented, very people-oriented, so it just makes sense that my very human-centric philosophy and belief kind of just was accentuated by the events that happened in higher education. So are you able to describe how education changed your religious worldview? I would say, if anything, it made it more people-centric for me. It was more about helping others. I guess before that point, I was always religious, but I never knew how to describe it for me. People have like their own way of describing their relationship with their religion. And for me, it became more about this is how I describe it, through how I help others. Again, that golden rule coming back in. And especially because I think it was Celine that was talking about, well, I guess both country and kids were talking about journeying around the world. And I've been to Greece. I've been to Italy, I was in South Africa, I was supposed to go to Tokyo this summer, but for obvious reasons that did not happen. And when I was in South Africa, trying to really connect with the African-American roots is kind of why I went there for my go trip or my study abroad trip they call it, or uh, what do you call that? Basically study abroad, you're going foreign countries, that sort of thing. And 
there was this methodology a lot of the citizens have there, and it was it is pronounced Ubuntu, or I am because we are, and this very community-centric ideal. And I'm like, oh, this is this sounds right up my alley. And then I came back and talking more with again, I was raised a Christian, so kind of combining that with this Christianity and bringing that all together is. I am because we are, I am who I help in this world. And that's how I kind of break down my relationship with religion is how I help others. And it might be not just how they give back to me, but to pass it along, you know, do something good for somebody else. That to me is religion. Been on the path the town men took. We came so close, pages of a book. Live to choose, room to breathe The sky's emotions are never seen In the fray, it's all enshrined Master or slave, confusing times Bend the edge to save the page Fist that holds all our rage It's not the way the world is It's the way I want the world to be Celine, with regard to your religious or spiritual outlook, first of all, what is that? And then how would you say that your education has affected that? I was raised in a Catholic and atheist family. So I had, uh, I was raised in Catholic schools. So that was very much part of our studies. We did religious studies. And I found that as I got older, we still had religious studies right till grade 12. And uh, I kind of fell away from the religion itself very young because I wanted to serve the church. But being female, it was not allowed for me to be an altar person. I could only help in a certain way. And deep down inside, I knew that it was a... Uh, something was wrong with that. And I kind of have shifted more so as life goes on towards atheism. How has it colored my worldview? I don't know. I guess it comes back to that. The open mind versus the closed mind. So, Katrine, yourself, um, how would you define your worldview in terms of worldview being a religious or spiritual, philosophical, and scientific outlook? Okay. So... I had a very long journey. Um, might be rele- relevant to share because I, I grew up in Iran, as I said, and it's a religious country. Um, or it became a religious country after the revolution. And the effect of that kind of education on me um, was that I became very anti-religion and, and I grew up in a family who was very secular and anti-religious. So um, the combination of that, but what I was seeing as what was defined as Islam uh, in Iran was nothing for me to, to connect to or to love. So I grew up not having any, not having a God. Uh, in my late thirties, I became intellectually interested in Judaism. And then when I 
felt the need of spirituality, I felt that that God speaks to me and I converted to Judaism. So now I'm a practicing Jew. I think it changed my view about everything, about how I define freedom, how I define responsibility, what is my purpose in life. So Judaism gave me the answer to all those questions and made Judaism for me makes everything more meaningful. And one thing that is hard to sometimes find meaning for is life. So it made my life more meaningful by telling me why I'm alive. Why am I even here? So it changed my life drastically. My education in Iran pushed me towards not liking religion at all. And in my, you know, limited mind, I thought, okay, Islam, my experience of Islam was terrible. Therefore, Islam is terrible. And Islam is a religion. Therefore, all religions are terrible. So that's the world that I grew up in. And many of my friends of my, my age and my family members still think that way. So I feel like I was able to get out of that. And that's, I'm grateful for that. I like so, that last thing you just said right there. Um, then you pointed out that through your experience with it, you said Islam kind of colored your opinion of religion. And I thought that might, that's a great way to kind of talk about this issue of how does one's education impact their worldview is we couldn't define religion at first, right? It was so raw, we had a hard time discussing that. And then we kind of figure out that it is like kind of like these camps, these schools of thought and that our initial impression of them, our first interaction can color our entire interaction with the idea as a whole. To use another example, it could be like going to college or they might see, I was talking to family union here about how they think all college is like a, a liberal institution. It's all about the political aspect and that's not entirely the case. Right. There's different schools. There's business school. There's the engineering school. There's so many different thoughts than just say liberal class, but because they dealt with some people they disagree disagree with politically on an issue between liberal and conservative, they saw, oh, all college education must be this thing right here that I'm talking about. So I'm like, oh, is it just the level of education or is it also one's interaction with education? Right. And you're talking about Black Lives Matter. So if it's someone coming up to you discussing the discussing the issue in a very calm tone, we're, hey, we're talking back and forth here, versus someone who's very energetic, very passionate, they come off maybe aggressive about the topic, then it's, oh, that's, that's how they all are, that's how they talk about that. So is it like, does can one person represent the whole? And is that whole representative of that school of thought? So I think that the conditioning is a really important aspect of this conversation too. Um, what are your conditions that are, that are either allowing you or not allowing you to be educated, either formally or informally? What kind of cultural transmission are you getting that is influencing you? Because that is conditioning as well. I, one thing I wanted to chime in, because you're talking about world perspective and perspective and where it comes from, and you can't completely separate your entire life experiences as they happen and your roles as they happen. because. If you look through your lifetime, those, those, those things shift and change, um, probably also with expectation. But I have to say that 
Um, I was a feminist before I became a mom, and I became even more entrenched into feminism when I became the mother of a daughter. Do you think that the nature of, of the extreme side of Islam in Iran um, affected your view of that religion? Definitely. I just very recently was able to, I want to say, be healed, because it takes a lot of healing when you grow up in such a um, unfortunately brutal culture. And I associated all that brutality with Islam. So to me, it was one. Um, and it took me years of really not wanting to see it that way, but not being able to see it any other way. It was in my bones. <laughs> um, just very recently, a, a very, very like unexpected experience helped me to shed that and move on and look at the woman with the scarf and don't feel like, oh, another one of them, you know? But it, it was hard. I'm so glad it, it was just such a opening for me. And then I would wonder also with Noah and your, um, I mean, you have multiple different worldviews simply by being you and where, where you, were raised and where you came into this world and all of these things shifted that. And so how about yourself with a feeling that I, you're such a positive human being. I can tell you're always, you're, you're all ready. You're smiling all the time. So I'm just, I, I, I'm also curious as to, you know, how growing up as a black man in Pennsylvania, has that shifted your worldview? Has that pushed you more so into the, um, into the university college sort of educational first gen thing is that what's really dr driven you to that point of view i like that i like that a lot uh one of the big things i think from my identity again you said being a black being adopted into this area to be very short about it is i was exposed to what some would call aggressive opposition from the onset when i got to campus again a small lib private liberal arts institution there were students of color who maybe never drove by a Confederate flag before. And so to them, that was like, this is huge, this is bad. And others would be like, they heard the N word out of a, a white man's mouth for the first time, hard R. And they're like, this, this is huge, right? And then they go to campus and there'd be microaggressions where they're like, how, how do you survive this? And to, to them, everything was like, like a pinprick, right? It was just getting stabbed at over and over and over again. And it's not that I'm, as you know, I'm a positive person. I'm not that I'm gonna have a hard shell or anything, but it's like, because I grew up with that and I've dealt with that, what it takes for me to be offended or feel a more extreme reaction is going to be a lot more because I grew up right next to this sort of thing. I drove by the Confederate flag. I would have to correct people, especially like the, not my friend group, my friend group, thank God, they were, they were great folks. I love my high school friends. But going to school, they, they drive trucks with a Confederate flag on the back, dropping the hard R, and they would see nothing wrong with that. Right? It was never to me, I'll say that much, it was never to me specifically, but it would be around me and stuff like that, little incidents that would happen. So it would be more about how I would have to devise a way to be a part of this community and correct people without being like, oh, there, there's that guy again. You know what I mean? Because I could just go out there and be like, that, that's, that's totally wrong. But if I did that every single time, I would be 
that guy. And so I think that sort of prepared me to go into university where a lot of it is defend your belief, defend your thesis, defend this and that. And I'm like, okay, you know, I've been doing this for years. So I think it's about how our worldview is, how we are shaped by our worldview, because, because I went into college with that worldview, it changed how some people saw me for better or worse. Some said, okay, this guy's pretty mature. He's got a pretty unbiased outlook, but some would also be like, this is very racist. Why aren't you freaking out about this? Why aren't you as upset as I am about that happening? And I'm like, I totally recovered, but I'm also upset, but it's to me not going to get that big reaction just because if I did every time, I would be a very unhappy person. Right. You're like, y'all are soft. <laughs> That's the <problem. laughs> Welcome to the world. <laughs> it's just different perspectives, different levels of tolerance. That's what I'll say, different levels of tolerance. That's what I'll say. Yeah. It's, and, I, you know, one of the things that, that make, this makes me think of is with education is the current cancel culture that's part of being a college student um, because it has swept, it seems to me that it swept the schools. That is kind of combining the two worlds of our conversation a little bit. It's allowing your worldview to affect your education and, and allowing your education to become a worldview in some ways, yeah? I mean, are you experiencing that? Yeah, I think the biggest aspect of that is, I think, in generations past, it was, oh, maybe maybe they had a liberal or left-leaning slant with colleges, and they take what they learn and go into the world with that point of view, right? But because of social media, it's like it brought the fight right to the college campuses, because now people online can just interact with one another. So the cancel culture can be immediate. We can all say, oh, out this person, if we all agree to that, we've canceled you. But by the same token, they can say, we don't like that university because of what you guys just did. And it's all right there online, very immediate in that regard. You know, you had a video you shared from your first gen Facebook page. I'm Precious, and I'm a first generation psychology and French double major at Susquehanna University. My name is Donovan Gales. I'm a recent graduate from Susquehanna University, where I served as the SGA president, as well as senior community assistant in residence life. My name is Xi'an. I'm a first generation college grad. My name is JJ, and I'm a graphic design major. My name is Jarmer Wilson, and I'm going to be answering a few questions today. And I just kind of want to talk to you guys a little bit about what it means for me to be a Black woman in higher education. So I'm going to start by reading the questions and then giving my answers. So the first question is, what does it mean to be Black in higher education? Now, that's a very important question because being a minority and being a person of color, specifically a black person of color in higher education is very symbolic. If we look at our white counterparts, many of them have the resources and the capability to be able to attend higher education institutions across the nations at far higher percentage rates. I think, especially as a first generation student, you're not really prepared for the kind of self-advocacy you're going to have to do, especially as a Black student. A lot of the resources and opportunities that I would see my white counterparts getting, I would kind of have to fight for 
I think that you have to work a lot harder and work a lot smarter. People are so basically the idea for that video was I wanted to reach out to like one video was about I want to reach out to first gen students and the other was going to be I wanted to reach out to students of color, many of which just so happened to be first gens. So I'm like, well, there you go. We're doing great here. And again, it's about levels of education. So what we do at first gen class is not formal education. I'm not a, not a teacher for this, but I have degrees in higher ed now. So I'm like, okay, let's just kind of use it as informally, right? Because that's how a lot of people who don't go to college, it doesn't mean they're not learning. So let's give them an opportunity to learn about a different point of view for that as a first gen who happens to be a student of color on campus and what do they go through? And I would find that I had agree with a lot of stuff, but it wasn't for me. It was about seeing my dad, loving the death here, and he was... Not, not in tears, so to speak, but really moved because he's just like when they're when the students in the theater are talking about they hear this and that and that's actually hurtful and nobody ever brings that up. He's like, have I done this before? No, have you felt that way about me? And I'm like, it's not about getting that reaction, but I'm so glad that you you internalize it that way. The first thing you do is okay, how how do I fit into this situation? What can I take away? What can I learn from this? And I feel like, as you said, point out for me, that's how I look at situations, kind of like a taking a step back, listen first, and then speaking. And that by watching that video, people will listen first and then be like, okay, this is how I think, this is how I can see myself and learn from what these people are talking about and saying. And I think it's good to even talk about race and privilege and kind of the education thing, because right now, obviously, the, the nation is right now going through a whole re-education of is this how history was? Was taught to you this way? People didn't hear about the Tulsa race riots, this, that, and the third. I'm thinking, oh, well, to me, I, I knew about all that. But again, I went out and I searched for that. So in formal education, is there a way we're kind of building to it right now culturally where it's like, will this informal education move into the formal? Will students in class learn about, yes, this is how it went down. These were the Tulsa race riots, this is that, and the third, and then would we all be more educated because of that fact? So I guess that, that's what I learned from it. You, I told you before about talking with the Klansmen, right? And about how that went, that was my first project for first year. If you could describe that, please. Let, right, everybody, so let everybody long, know long, that has no no idea. Yeah, so long, long, I don't want to talk forever here, you know, took up air time. So long, long story short, I was a creative writing major at one point and there was a class from a professor about immersion projects. I was supposed to learn about a culture or activity or group of people that I don't know a lot about. And I thought, you know, I got just the people, you know? I'm living here in Central PA, so I reached out to a mutual interest of mine who knew basically uh, a white supremacist. That's, that's the best way of putting it, right? He believed that white people were just above everybody else. So that's, that's how he described himself. And I said, we're not going to do this as kind of an accusatory, or I'm going to try to convince you something like that, but I want to hear your point of view and basically transcribe that for the class project. And he agreed to it. We'll call him person A. So person A agreed to this because he felt that the media put him in a bad light. The media would paint him as a villain. He's not a villain, he said. He wanted to sit down and talk through it. And that's what we did. We met in a a little base of a restaurant somewhere. We had we had a mediator, which was basically there to ensure, you know, everybody stayed alive, you know? And so I sat down with person A, I had the mutual interest right there. And I think the greatest part of the experience for me was getting to sit across from someone and 
they were nervous. And I like that element that that it that it impacted them as much as it did me in that regard. They weren't sitting there all smug. They weren't confident. It was definitely a very "how is this gonna go" sort of thing. And I believe we learned a lot about each other. Now again, that person A didn't do a lot of talking to me. It's a lot of talking with the mediator, and then it came to me, and then that's how we interacted, kind of like that. But I love how over time it did get less aggressive. It wasn't like I was kind of correcting him. But it was a lot of me saying, if this is what you believe, right, you know, you're talking about, I'm not racist, you know, we're all crazy, we're all this. And I'm like, well, then kind of show me that respect and how just that little thing right there changed a lot of our interaction. Now, I'm not going to say that it affects like the whole organization or different people, but I'm thinking I just hopefully made a difference right there with this one person. Is that not education? I've learned about this person and they've learned about me, and hopefully they left with a different worldview than they came in with. And that is probably a hybrid of informal education and cultural transmission, because there were, you were not, he was probably not sitting down with the intention of having any kind of education whatsoever. True. Perhaps he was intending on educating you. That could have been. Um, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Going through some of these other points about uh, the types of education you can get and how important critical thinking is to, to life in general and just understanding things. If you don't have the ability to, to, to utilize critical thought, it's easy to have conversations that become debates turn into futile interactions. Whereas if you're able to utilize critical thought, you can have real conversations that turn into people having a better understanding because the goal is to have a correct thought, not to win an argument or something. So critical thought is defined as the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. Now, there are also six benefits of critical thought and why they matter, and those are it encourages curiosity, it enhances creativity. It reinforces problem-solving ability. It's a multifaceted practice. It fosters independence. And number six, it's a skill for life, not just learning. Critical thought, this is what's interesting, is this is from Scientific American. Critical thought, or critical thinking, is best taught outside the classroom, Scientific American says. And this is because informal learning environments tolerate failure better than schools do. Perhaps many teachers have too little time to allow students to form and pursue their own questions and too, too much ground to cover in the curriculum for, a standardized, for standardized tests. But people must acquire this skill somewhere. And our society, it, uh, our society depends on them being able to make critical decisions about their own medical treatment, say, or what we must do about global energy needs and demands. For that, we have a robust informal learning system that eschews grades takes all comers, and is available even on holidays and weekends. From APA.org, this article is Brain Imaging Suggests How Higher Education Helps to Buffer Older Adults from Cognitive Declines. So basically, this link is, this article is saying that higher education makes, it exercises muscles in your brain that will stay with you through the course of your life. And this other article is talking about that in particular and how there's 
academic education reinforces the frontal lobe of your brain, whereas uh, informal exercise is the temporal. And the frontal lobe is important for cognitive function and control of voluntary movement or activity, whereas the temporal processes memories, integrating them into sensations of taste, sound, sight, and touch. So I think that because of my life experience and that informal learning, it actually conditioned me to become an actor because you, you need to be able to inhabit a body, inhabit a personality, inhabit someone else's taste, sound, sight, touch, kinesthetic experiences. I wonder what your perspectives are on someone like me who has done more of the informal, temporal exercise of the brain, more critical thinking, more autodidact. Do you feel that I'm at a deficit in that way or would you say that there are deficits on both sides? I think it's on both sides. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Why? Those who self-study and get to, to the results that way instead of formal study, they always make me, I mean, looking at them is really awe-inspiring. The process is fascinating, the result is fascinating, and the person is fascinating to me. Whether formal education, unless it's a really good situation, which is very rare, it's very mechanical. You don't regret the schooling that you got that was formal, do you? I can't, no, I can't tell I regret it. That's right. You know, maybe in music, I was not so talented to be able to get there without that education. Um, in writing, maybe my, I'm more, you know, I have more things to, to do with words than with, with music. But for those who have that talent in music, maybe they didn't need the education that I went through. Yeah, you know, there's another uh, aspect, whether people go to school based on passionate dedication this is something they they desperately want to know more about they they have a thirst for it or if it's obligatory participation which i think is the case for at least in this country there's there's quite a bit of that we more than any other country have put students into debt for education so the grand majority of our discretionary federal budget where we choose to take our fiscal our our fiscal energy we have decided the most important thing is killing is murder is is war machine gets the majority of the money no matter what that's the most important thing we can do with our money every single president every single year allocates the grand majority of that pie to the department of defense to pentagon so that's money that doesn't get to go to education or to infrastructure or to uh, making sure that we have a, a system in this country that is not systemically racist that's that money could be going into communities and actually really affecting people's lives in this country, and instead it goes elsewhere. So we choose to say to students, you need to have an education because if you don't, you're not going to have a good outlook, good prospects for employment. If you do get an education, you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life, and good luck if you ever pay it off. In other countries where it's just a taxed it's just part of the system that you're going to go to school if you want to. It's being paid for, so take it if you'd like. You know, in Germany, there's a school where anybody in the world can go for free, but the list is so long because there's so many people that want to be a part of that. The education you're getting and how it affects your worldview is so affected by where you live. 
Noah, with your, your experience in education, since you're still in it, how do you feel like that's affecting your outlook moving forward? Ooh, how does it affect my outlook moving forward? I would say that I would work in an environment as an admissions rep is, I guess, put simply, I help families understand that colleges are more affordable than they might originally think. One big thing we talk about is sticker price versus net price of a university. My dad is a stickler, you know, the penny pincher guy. He's the guy that's just like, he walks up and like, if you Google Susquehanna University, and he's like, well, I don't want to pay that amount. And that's the, the sticker price, what you think you need to pay. But then we get into the admissions representative's office and they explain what you're going to get. I got what's called the Dean Scholarship. So it cut off half of my tuition for all four years, right? That helps out. Take federal loans. That takes a big chunk out. I got six. By the end of my senior year, of course, I was working six different jobs weekly. That took a big chunk out of what I paid for a bachelor's. Now I'm going for a graduate. Oh, is that more debt? No, because I'm now a graduate assistant. I have a hard time saying that. Graduate assistantship program. And that means I'm not paying tuition. And they're paying me to work there. So... There's several ways you can help pay for your education. I think it's much harder in America, and I would want to work one day to make that process easier and more clear to understand for folks instead of just, well, I guess I got to pay all that, take a big loan out, and then, yes, you're stuck with that loan. But then that leads into a conversation on financial literacy and understanding how to give back. Because you point out, I think you said earlier about, oh, okay, but a computer program and did all this and that. So I'm like, there's kind of two camps of thought, right? There's like the higher earning degree where it's like you want to be an engineer or a doctor, right? And you'll make enough money to pay that back, right? And like my degree where I'm thinking I'm going into a public service, which might not just typically make as much money, but there are different ways to pay it back. Loan forgiveness being a big one. So I'm looking at a, a kind of form because I, I like to look plan ahead in that regard where it's like, okay, if I get a job like this, public service, public domain, public school service, in about 10 years, so you get loan forgiveness. So the program of which I might pay back those loans might be, uh, I pay a lot less right now, but if I didn't get that loan forgiveness, I would be paying it off the rest of my life, right? Because interest will gain. It's like they elevate the pot each time. So you need to plan ahead to how you pay that off. So in terms of going for education, if you know all that ahead of time, all that I just said, make sure you're passionate about what you do. That way you love the job you're going to. You love what you're doing and it's not going to impact your drive once it does get difficult, which at some point it will. Katrine, it's nice to have you involved in this and I hope that I hope we get you involved in more Collective Perspective episodes in the future. And Noah, thank you for, for presenting this topic and being a co-host and being such a, a great addition. So on that, I thank you so much. I give you my peace, my love, and my respect. And I hope to see you all again soon. Yes. Thank you again for having me. And nice to meet you too.